I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BVI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Bianca Miller-Cole, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd have emphasized society's race, class, and social quality fault lines. And we'll all be touching on those issues over the course of the series. And we all know with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite piece of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me today is William Waldegrave, chairman of Coots Private Bank, who's going to discuss both social justice and wealth management. Welcome, William. I'm very pleased to be with you, Michael. So, William, um, as you know, we, we try to bring out some of your musical tastes that tell us a little bit about the kind of person you are. You've chosen the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Why? Well, um, I, I'm of that generation which was where everything seemed to change because of the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan. Um, and the first chord of A Hard Day's Night always seemed to me, although it wasn't the first, their first hit record, but it was the first one which sort of ushered in the new era, it seemed to me. Everything was changing and there was hope in the world and more freedom and things were going to get better. And it's a wonderful track and it's a wonderful opening chord, I think. So just take us back to that time in the uh, maybe the 1960s. Who was William Waldegrave in the 1960s? Well, he was a pretty privileged youngster. I mean, I was brought up in a, a well-off family, went to um, uh, boarding school, went to famous or infamous Eton, and um, became infected there with the, with the best sides of the school, I hope, which was the feeling that you could do anything if you really had a go at it. I, I had a housemaster who'd been a great sculling and rowing champion. He instilled in me the belief that if you have a go, it's, um, it, it's worth it, even if you don't make it. So that is a message which is a universal message, I think, which is still a value. I listened this morning, the day we're recording, Michael, to Helen Glover, another great rower. Didn't quite get her medal to, to add to her previous goals, but she wasn't apologetic. She said, I had a real go and it was worth it. And there's no dishonor and failure if you put your best into it. Uh, as if coming fourth in the Olympics, mind you, is failure, which by most people's standards it's not. <laughs> it's exceptionalism for most of us. Absolutely <laughs> exceptionalism. Do you remember that time back in the in the 60s for you as 
putting aside the privilege, mm. do you remember it as being a tough time for learning? Were you, was it an easy ride through Eton? Well, everything was changing. And in, in teaching and education, the old ways were giving way, in Dylan's words, to the new. And I was partly taught by all the people who taught me were very good teachers, but some of them were very, very old-fashioned. They, they hadn't changed their methods really since Victorian times. I loved learning the classics, Latin and Greek, and they taught me Homer and Virgil and all the great things. And I don't regret that for a moment. But I was also taught by very uh, progressive younger teachers. There was a wonderful guy called Norman Routledge, who was a brilliant mathematician, had been a friend of Alan Turing's. It was my own particular tutor, John Roberts, who'd been a communist in his youth, and he'd ended up at Eton teaching classics, and he, he introduced us to new ways of thinking. So everything seemed possible, and everything was in flux. And of course, that reflected what was going on in the outside world, with people saying they wouldn't put up with the old ways, the times they were changing, and we all had a great sense of hope then. Now you, you went from Eton to Oxford, Oxford to Harvard. It, it was a, a pretty straight line of Almost succession. Well, it was. I mean, I'm not one of those people who are lucky enough to just be able to swan along and do it without work. So uh, I found a saying, I apologize for my Russian to any Russian speakers, I found a saying of Lenin's, which was trud, trudy, trud, which I thought meant work, work, and work. And I had that, I wrote that in my diary. And so it, I, I wasn't a sort of effort in my own view. I, I was trying to make the most of the privileges that were given me, but it, I, I tried to work very hard at them. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that it's, if you are lucky enough to be privileged, it's a disgrace if you don't use what's given to you. And you used it to go into politics, which allowed you to serve people. So you went on then to serve in Margaret Thatcher's government, which was a way that you could really serve people as, a, as an elected member. I hope so, and I'm a tremendous proponent of, of the idea that, and I always say this when I go and talk to sixth forms in schools or in schools, um, is that democracy is a voluntary system. <laughs> and if you don't participate in it yourself, somebody else will. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to think you're the best person in the world, but uh, you, you can't be a spectator and just criticize. No, I don't mean that everybody's got to be a politician, but everybody should vote, everybody should participate in some way in trying to make society in a hundred different ways engage with society. Uh, I um, did go down the route of, of, of seeking elected office. I was inspired, actually, by Mrs. Thatcher's old opponent, because the first two politicians to uh, inspire me were Mr. Heath, and Mr. Ian McLeod, and the first political letter I ever wrote was to Ian McLeod when he was opposing the original Commonwealth Immigration uh, Act, limiting immigration from the Commonwealth. And um, I was a, a progressive, in, in inverted commas, conservative. I was passionately against hanging. I got into trouble when I was president of the Oxford University Conservative Association for saying that we ought to um, use military force to put down the rebellion in... Um, what was then uh, Southern Rhodesia, because they were in rebellion from the Crown and weren't obeying the law. But that didn't get very far and got me into trouble with some of the uh, grown-ups. But so I was on the, uh, if if you like, on the on the uh, the modernising wing of the party. But Mrs. Thatcher was kind to me, promoted me. She knew I disagreed with a good deal of what she said, but she gave me jobs. 
And you found, did you find that politics gen generally and generously satisfied you? Well, it's it's a roller coaster, and I I um, I envy the people who have a really thick skin. One of my friends on the other side of the uh, political spectrum, who was a friend of mine, who was brought up in the same discipline of classics, was was Dennis Seeley, the late Dennis Seeley. Now he he had a hide like a rhinoceros, I think, Dennis, and he was one of the ablest politicians, one of the very best ministers I've, I've ever seen in action. And I've sometimes envied people with a bit bit of a thicker hide. And it's a dilemma, that, because you don't want to be so unfeeling about criticism that you just ignore it. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so affected by it that you can't do anything, that you're constantly... Mm -hmm. And somehow, um, and sometimes I worry about the savagery of social media attacks on current people in the public eye of all kinds, not just politicians, anybody um, uh, who gets in the public eye because it drives people to just keep out of the public. And if we, if we drive the best people out of politics, then we'll just have less good people. And therefore more people to complain about rather than actually solutions delivered. That's right. So it's a long answer to a very good, uh, straightforward question. I had some highs where I think I did things right. I had some lows where in retrospect, I think I did things all wrong. And I wrote a memoir pointing out that one of the ironies was I got, uh, blamed for things that weren't my fault, but not blamed for things that were my fault. But that's life, and probably it'll all get smoothed out in the end. So the next track that you chose is Ain't Misbehaving from Fats Waller. And that suggests that you were a keen dancer. Well, I'm a terrible dancer, but I love that sort of classical jazz. I think that's one of the high points of music. Um, I think Fats Waller is a genius. I think Fats Waller... Um, and is in a way the 20s, 30s equivalent of, of Leonard McCartney, but I'm not sure he doesn't sometimes reach even greater heights. Um, and uh, the good humor and the sort of genius of making you smile, you can't listen to that music when you're feeling down and not be lifted up. Um, but, and, I love, and I love all his great songs, Your Feet's Too Big, all, all, of, the, all of them. And uh, that, that great Harlem Renaissance time must have been a, a wonderful time to, to, to live in if you were lucky enough to share any of it. During the, during the time of this, this pandemic we've all battled with, have you been able to get live music or has everything had to be on the machine? It's, everything's pretty well had to be on the machine, except I, I was lucky enough to be locked down for a long time last year with two of my grandchildren and their parents, three of my grandchildren, they're two twins, so that there was quite a lot of music, but not necessarily of the Fats Waller level. And I'm very familiar with all the music of Peppa Pig and so on. But so there, there wasn't much live music, no. And that, that's one of the things I should look forward to again. That's 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 a very funny suggestion. <laughs> so <clears throat> a really significant pinnacle for anybody would be to be chairman of of a bank, but to be chairman of Coots. It's a huge and amazing achievement. Just what, what does it mean to you? It's a great honor because it's a very old institution, one of the oldest banks in the world. It's, it's not independent in that it's, the family sold it to the old National Provincial Bank just after the First World War. But it's, it's, it's always retained its separate board and its separate banking license, and it now belongs to the successor to NatWest. But they give us independence, and they have a good sense to treat us as an independent bank. And um, it's an honor because the founders, Thomas Coots and 
uh, he was a very interesting guy who was a tremendous patron of the theater and of youngsters in music and so on. And the great um, uh, 19th century philanthropist, really the first great philanthropist, organized philanthropist in the United Kingdom was a woman, Angela Burdett Coots, who owned the bank, um, who uh, set up all manner of, of uh, philanthropic activity in the, um, in the 19th century and had some panache and some style about her too, because she only, the inheritance of Coots was thought to be so important then you couldn't let it fall into foreign hands. So she was only allowed to inherit the shares to own the bank if she didn't marry a foreigner. So she did all her work owning the bank, but she didn't. She, she spent most of her energy in philanthropy. And then when she was, I think, nearly 60, she upped and married an American. And uh, there was a frightful round. Queen Victoria tried to stop it and so Anyway, this is a long way around to say it's a bank with great tradition, and we're very proud of the fact that we've just become, I think, the first bank in the United Kingdom to become a B Corp, mm -hmm. which is a an external referee that we're doing things ethically and socially properly. It's a tough thing to achieve. You know, it's not just box ticking and it's tough to keep it up. Um, but it represents the fact that, that the bank is, is, although it's very old, is looking forward and trying to be a leader in its field in some of the things that we're, we've been talking about today. So the philanthropic tradition, as you said, has been there right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And you work quite hard at encouraging those who bank with you to be philanthropic. We do. Uh, our boast is that we are not the sort of short-term investors. We want to help families who've made money uh, pass the, the money on to their children, because uh, that's very often the energy that provides people's ambition for making money. But beyond their own family, we very early on introduced them to the idea that they will want to do some philanthropy and we help them set up family trusts. And we have our own Coots Foundation, which in honor of Angela Burdett Coots specifically concentrates on issues um, to do with women and girls, which is an area of philanthropy which is underrepresented actually in the charitable, charitable cosmos, if you like. Now, you also are provost of Eden. You've kind of gone back to, yeah. to your old school to lead it. Um, and have you felt you've been able to change it since you've been in that role? Well, yes, but I changed it. Um, in, and, and it's very easy to be the chair of something if you've got the right chief executive. I'm, I'm very lucky at Coots because I've got the right chief executive in Peter Flavel. And I'm very lucky at Eton because we appointed Simon Henderson, who uh, wanted to take the school forward in all sorts of ways and has been courageous about doing so. We've just announced that in partnership, uh, with a wonderful academy chain called Star Academy. Um, uh, we're going to set up with them two uh, selective sixth forms, three selective sixth forms in the north of England and the North Midlands to add to their armory of helping um, kids in really deprived areas to have the same sort of opportunities these are, there's not, uh, uh, as, as the people who pay at Eton do. We've also greatly increased the bursaries at Eton. So we've got now... 100 uh, totally free places and another 100, which are um, three, about roughly two or third, two thirds or three quarters free. So the school, like Coots, it's the same sort of issue. If you're going to survive, you've got to move. You can't mm. just look backwards. And if that school, if there are going to be any independent schools, the best argument for them is that they try and experiment and lead in what it needs to be done in each generation. 
And that's what we're trying to do. And Simon Henderson is, is leading us in the right direction, in my view. You've become a very accessible school, haven't you? Eton has really reached out. We have, and it's made the school so much better. I mean, it started in you know, nearly 600 years ago with Henry the, the, the VI setting up a, a free school for 70 poor scholars. Now, mind you, they weren't all that poor because they had to be able to read and write. And in 1440, that, that was a minority to start with. But, but that was the principle. And um, when I became provost, which is chair of governors and, and anybody else's language, we were down to about, I think, about 35 free places. So we've got that back up to 100. And as I say, we're, we're working hard and raising money to have uh, more. Uh, and we are grappling with all the issues of, of a modern curriculum and of what one should be teaching about the past and how to prepare people for the future that all schools are grappling with. Um, and we're trying to partner and are partnering with the maintained sector um, because while we have a, a, a system, and I think in a free society, we'll always have a, a system of some independent schools, the more they work together with the rest of the education system, the better for both sides. It makes our school far better and more interesting that we've got a much wider range of people in it than maybe we would have done at one time. I mean, you very much, William, embody that spirit and determination to make what could be seen as privileged places accessible to others. And when you look around the city of London now, you see, unfortunately, this year, there are no black senior figures on major boards of city corporations. And do you think we, we need an approach very similar to what you've taken on at Eton, which is where we've got to actually set some, not just targets, but maybe even set some pretty high limits that's got to be this number? I'm a great believer in targets. Concentrates the mind. Um, people say, oh, well, quotas and things are all wrong. It's not quotas. It's setting objectives, ambitions, and then calling people to account if they don't achieve them. I'm happy to say that Coots has a good uh, gender balance on its board, and we've just appointed Sharmila Nabrajani, um, as, who is an outstanding person as a uh, latest director. So we are trying to do our bit, because apart from anything else, any organization, and Michael, you know this better than anybody, tone from the top really matters. Uh, the youngsters look up and say, are they serious or are they just doing this for PR? And they, they don't believe that it's serious unless they see that there are roots for them um, being cut through the jungle of, of past prejudice. And it's, it's just wasteful uh, to exclude the talent um, of all those parts of society which are still excluded. Mm. One of, I keep coming across this, and you know it far better than I do, but the energy shown... Uh, by immigrant communities in this country is just astounding. Now, I'm by no means saying that all the black people in this country are immigrants. There have been, in my old city of Bristol, where I was the MP, there have been black people for hundreds of years because of the disgraceful slave trade connections. Um, but there jolly well were um, in Cardiff across the bay. There were famously black families for many, many generations. But there have been of course, uh, much more recent immigrants. And my goodness, they provide a, a sense of energy and achievement, don't they? I mean, all the time you get these extraordinary stories. And that needs to recognise that hard work does deliver results and turns these people, they're wonderful entrepreneurs by nature and they can be effective business people yeah. by reality. I quite agree. I mean, one of the things I was most proud of that my old boss, Ted Heath, did 
uh, was um, rescue the um, Uganda nations who mm. were being persecuted by Idi Amin. And my goodness, if you look at that cohort of people uh, who came in in the in the um, 70s, my goodness, they've contributed a lot to this country. Yes, they have. Absolutely fantastic. Now, your final track is wonderful classical music, J.S. Bach, Goldberg Variations. Just That's quite different to your previous two tracks. Why is that? It is. Well, I think that music, it, it's deceptively simple. And the thing about Bach is, I think, that you never quite get to the end of him. He's like a, the greatest poetry of, of um, uh, Shakespeare or the, the great poets. And those Goldberg variations, in the first one, he starts off and he plays the theme. And then he plays with this theme in, a, in so many different ways. And I think, I think that uh, to remind oneself of a different kind of contemplative, analytical creativity, um, as well as the fun that the other two provide. Although, going back to Fats Waller, there's always a, a, t a, a touch of, of sorrow, isn't there, behind even the best jazz, and no wonder where it, because of where it came from. But I think this was to balance having something analytical and thoughtful, which I'd never quite get to the bottom of. Um, and uh, I think he is a very, very great genius, but... Oh, that's lovely. That's really good. Now, for, for so many of those who will be listening to this, that COVID, yes, has been hugely defining, but also very defining of this time of 2020, 2021, has been the killing of George Floyd and all that was accompanying all of that. What, what were your initial thoughts when you became aware of it? Well, horror like anyone else. Um, and... It, uh, one could see that it was going to be made, rightly made, um, into a pivotal moment. The death of this man was not by any means unique, as we know, but what it, but that film, uh, that awful film, which one could be barely bear to watch, meant that his death became a... a a weapon, a, a weapon, a good weapon, a weapon in the right hands to get change and was used worldwide for that, a monument to him, an involuntary monument to him. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it, was, it, it, it was not that that was anything unique, I'm afraid, but it was a moment which could be taken and run with and used to, for good, and it was. And it has begun to make, uh, to speed up change and to stop backsliding, because there's always the danger of going backwards in these things too. We've got some of the worst kind of, of, of dark nationalism about again in the world, which can take us in the wrong direction. So we've got to watch, uh, uh, if we don't go forwards, we go backwards, we don't just stop, I think. So it was, one could see that it was going to be one of those moments, like the death of JFK or something, mm. that was going to be a, a, a seminal moment. You, you referred to these dark moments, and, and there have been so many periods in history that seem to repeat with evil re-arising to the surface and, and autocratic leaders taking control. And, and we, we seem to be easily cajoled into that, which is grossly destructive. Yeah, we do. And um, there's something in our species which is destructive. It's the other side of our creativity, I think. I mean, 
Um, the, the traditional Christians called it original sin. Doesn't matter what you call it. It's this: we have to recognize the dark side of our of our, our nature and build structures and work against it. We can't pretend it's not there. And it's why, in one sense, I'm on the moderate conservative side of politics. Uh, that what took me that way was because I do believe it's very important to build structures to help you. Uh, to help you um, hold back the, the wrong side of human nature. And I'm always nervous for people who want to sweep everything away because if you sweep everything away, you sometimes get, uh, you, you let the very, very rough elements of our nature out in the wrong way. Now, that's not to say that you don't need both yin and yang. You, you need the pull from the left and you need the pull from the, from the right. And both of us, both the left and the right, our job is to suppress the things beyond out on the, our flanks, which are evil. There's evil out on the right wing flank, there's evil out on the left wing flank. And, you, and part of the job of, of all those who want actually to build a better society is to, is to fight that fight. And sometimes it's the conservatives who have to fight the hard right, just as it's the, the, the social democrats who have to fight the, the hard left. In the position you occupy as chairman of, of a bank and being in the, the city of London, as you think about these issues of racial justice, a lot of the banks have been looking at their history. A lot of the institutions of the city have been looking at, at their history. And Is there a particular change that you feel really must be made? Well, I think that, that uh, facing up to history... I had the privilege of working with Mr. Mandela after he'd retired from being president in setting up a new foundation, educational foundation in South Africa. And he was absolutely clear in his leadership and in his mind that we should look, look apartheid straight in the eye, not hide anything, but then go forward and use some of the some of the industries and things that have been built by the apartheid regime use them and, and give them back to to the black people to be participants in in the proper way so it's this balance i guess between um recognizing the part looking it straight in the eye not trying to disguise it or make it go away um but then saying um we we have to we are where we are and we've got to build the best society we can and it's. It would be. I, I'll tell you. One of my heroes was my headmaster at Eton. It was called Robert Burley, who was the uh, chief education officer in the British zone in Germany after the war, and he rebuilt the German education system, the greatest um, uh, uh, program of uh, uh, revision of a of school and university curriculum ever undertaken, and he did it brilliantly by working with people, because the Nazis, the first thing they did was take over the universities and take control of the, of the curriculum in the schools. And he's, he was always, was always a, 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 an example to me of how you don't disguise what needs to be done, but you do it with people. And he did it from the bottom up. He wrote a, a lovely essay about this in which he said, the French turned up and they tried to make everybody, all the Germans, into Frenchmen. The Americans turned up with five times more money than anybody else, and everybody had wonderful books of how to proceed, and they did pretty well. He spent the first year just talking to people at the grassroots and saying, how can we make this better? And he didn't eschew, he knew that lots of the teachers who'd had to join the 
the Nazi party to keep their jobs weren't necessarily evil. They were just being frightened. And he, he didn't say, we can't deal with any of these people. He said that underneath their fear and their kowtowing to the horrible regime, there were something that could be rescued. And that's something important too, I think. As you, as you look to the future, do you have a, is there something, there's a kind of vision that's still burning within you about the future? What kind of pledge would you want to make? Well, in simple terms, I've got six grandchildren and the seventh is on the way. Um, I want them to inhabit a world which is not being destroyed by um, extremes of climate, obviously. That goes without saying. But I also want them to live in a world where we look back on the kind of racial prejudice that is still about in the way that we we are beginning to look back in, in in most of the UK at any rate on the sort of gender prejudice that there was, where you know uh, women didn't go out to work and weren't allowed to have jobs and things. That's beginning to fade into the past. Now we're less far on, I think, uh, with the with the race battle, but we're. We mustn't give up. We're making progress. I know things aren't perfect, and 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 there's plenty to do. But I want them. I, I have uh, two, of, three of those um, of those six present grandchildren, uh, half Bengali, and I don't want them to be living in a world where anybody, either in Bengal, incidentally, or here, looks at uh, them in any different way. I want that they're. I'm, I'm not a cold-hearted admirer of the sort of Hindu nationalism that there is about in India. I don't, I don't think that's helping us, and I don't. Uh, and, but I, I don't want them to be uh, uh, not having exactly the same um, uh, access to everything that they need and want and can get by hard work that their, their uh, other first cousins will hopefully get. As you, as as we. We're coming to the end now of our conversation. What pledge would you make to the future that you know you can fulfill? I think I can make a pledge to Sam and Elora and Nico, my half Bengali grandchildren, and say to them, look, I'm going to make sure that you have the same opportunities as your first cousins. Thank you. Well, that's sadly all that we've had time for today. We could really talk about so very, very much. It's been a very rich conversation. Thank you, William, for joining me. Thank you for opening up your fascinating life and your remarkable organizations and your future plans. I know this episode will stay with us a very long time. You've given so much of your insight. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, a business leader or a famous personality, Until then, please subscribe, review, leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and your opinion on business, social justice, and a fair society, please contact us at podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 